Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 87 was recorded live October 27th, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I am Darren Jolson, and this week some of the articles we're going to have in the news is we have uh, fifth graders underwater, scuba divers set the record, patty apps, and divers don't get headaches. And I'd like to welcome back from Egypt is Claire. How are you doing today, Claire? Morning, guys. I'm very well, thank you. And we also have our dive mentor, Mac. How are you doing today, Mac? Very well, thanks. Glad to be here. And uh, we've had some interesting weather here in the Midwest, haven't we, Mac? We've had some rain. We've had hail, a little bit of snow, but it didn't stick. Then we had sunshine and high winds again. Yeah, that's been crazy. Have, Have you had a chance to get in the water? Not since Sunday. I almost went out yesterday, but I still need a shed because it's too windy. Ah. Now, you, you said not since Sunday, so you went out last Sunday? Yes, we did go on the wreck. Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, when we get to that part of the show, you can tell us about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. So, uh, and then, Claire, you've, you, I bet you've got a little bit of diving in since we talked last time. Just a little bit, yes. <laughs> in fact, that's <laughs> why I haven't been able to come on, because it, it hasn't coincided with my day off and... Getting up at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and then going to work isn't actually that easy from here no. anyway. <laughs> I, I imagine not. That that would be quite a challenge. Uh, I've done it a few times and it's, yeah, by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon I start thinking, oh, I need to sleep. <laughs> so I, try, I managed to coordinate my days off this week. Well, we have a full show. We'll also do some talking. We have some uh, challenges out there uh, talking about uh, everybody showing their dive gear and we also have a discussion that we'll get on after the news, which is, is scuba diving a sport? Uh, Rich Sinewick and Diver Sink talked about that a little on his show Tuesday, so we're going to visit that topic. And I've got quite a bit of background information. I've probably overanalyzed it to death, but uh, I think we've, we've got a good case for this being uh, a sport in my mind. But until then, uh, the first article we have up is Battle Creek 5th Graders Try Out Underwater Robot. And let me pull this up. Uh, those of you who listened to the recording didn't didn't get to see my dive crash, and I think it's because I had too much stuff going. Just killed the computer. So a group of ba- Battle Creek fifth graders recently enjoyed an underwater uh, learning experience. Uh, last Friday, the students uh, manned the controls of an electronic underwater robot. Uh, they did it in Clear Lake at about 50 yards away. A flat screen TV on the back of an SUV is how they uh, viewed the underwater. Mark Gleason is a chief maritime scientist in Muskegon-based Great Lakes Naval uh, Memorial and Museum, and uh, he gave the hands-on experience for the kids. Uh, What's interesting for this is this is right in our backyard, isn't it, Mac? Well, the nice part about that is two items. One, I'm going to send you a link, which I just now did. You can send that out to the other people for home-built ROVs. Uh Uh, You can do amazing stuff with PVC piping and trolling motors nowadays. Uh, The electronics from the aspect of GPS and all on the home belts are very economical. So if you like home belts or even thinking about it, take a look at that. The second part is I was talking to you earlier about uh, this week, they're having that uh, uh, Great Lakes Naval Memorial and Museum, that the program up there. Yes. The 29th in Muskegon. And one of the programs they happen to have is build an ROV. And it's uh, $10 a person. Uh, they have class times at 9 o'clock, 11, 1, and 3. And it might be interesting just to go to one of those. It could be fun. That's excellent. So we pasted that into the news. So, And that's, is that being put on by the same gentleman who did this? Uh, no, I don't believe so. This is part of a, the other marine technology item. Uh, I can't see it, doesn't, because I really don't know. Okay. But uh, in that same neck of the woods, Muskegon can't be that big a place. Next one up is we have Scuba Diver Looks to Set a Record. And it doesn't seem like a week can go by where we don't have somebody trying to set some form of underwater record. Uh, this is a scuba diver's planned a three-day dive near Lauderdale by the Sea's artificial reef to set a record. And this is according to the South Florida Sun Sentinel. 
Alan Sherrod wants who uh, wants to top the current Guinness World Record for saltwater dive. He previously set a five-day record for the longest freshwater dive. He says, we have a bad economy. I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> Remember, this is a guy we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and he was he was the one who did the five days, I believe. Yep. 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 So, uh, I mean, I guess you, you've already got all the logistics and everything set down. You did in the uh, freshwater. Why not go ahead and do it in the saltwater? So uh, his, his effort is to raise money to protect a reef, and uh, divers and snorkels are welcome to attend. So, as always, you can check into our show notes and follow that link. We'll have that in there. Uh, do they say what day it is? He's planned a three-day dive. Started on the 25th. Oh, so he could be uh, right in the middle of it now. Yeah. Yeah. But, what an interview. What's that? Underwater interview. Yeah, we could have, we could have done that. Well, he's got uh, that, uh, I won't use the term that Rich did, but uh, Rena, the hurricane or tropical storm, is heading that way. So I wonder if that's going to play any effect in what he's trying to do. I don't know if he's far offshore or whatever. I don't know. It seemed like when I cross-referenced the story and looked at another article, it, it was he's he's in saltwater, but he's in a fairly protected bay area. I'd imagine he'd have to be quite shallow. Otherwise, you know, he's going to... Well, I guess you could do like a, a massive deep session coming back up if it was any deeper. But the next one is we have Patty is releasing an update to their popular scuba diving app, which is available for both the iPhone and the Android smart devices. And I actually uh, have had downloaded this app. I, I even have the update, but I haven't played around with it. Uh, the recreational scuba divers... Uh, are supposed to be kept up with the, some of the features that they've added are RSS news feed and events feed. So in addition to being able to find the stores, which you could before, uh, they're now going to have news that's going to be integrated in with the app. So uh, uh, it's primarily when it was first released, was it had a listing of all the Paddy Dive Center and Resorts locators. So trying to make the app a little bit more useful. Now, you know, how, what, you know, why, don't you, if, uh, why don't you head on over to Facebook as you listen to this, and why don't you say what you'd like to see in a mobile app? Uh, are people interested in dive logs, uh, dive shop locators, what have you? What would what would be interesting? What should Patty be adding to this app beyond what they've done already? Um, Mac, do you do you have a smartphone or anything that you play around with like that? I'm not smart enough for a smartphone or a computer, <laughs> any of those. So I'm in the old technology. I've got a camera on mine that I occasionally accidentally make go on and off when I open my flip phone. So. From the techie aspect, you're, I'm, I'm one of those ancient persons. Yeah, yeah uh, Dive Mistress in the uh, chat room is mentioning uh, e-cards. I, I think that also might be a feature of the app was uh, the e-card for... Oh, um, yeah, they just pulled that out. Yeah, yeah. So you can, instead of having the plastic cards, you can have your e-cards yeah. sent to you. I, I, I think that's going to be handy. Yeah. That's, I, I'm, that's always the one thing I'm... I, I seem to not have with me. You know, up around here, after you've been in a store a couple hundred times, they, they tend to stop checking your C-card. So we have to remember yeah. when we travel to bring that with us. Yeah. I need to get a smartphone first. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I can I'm go up, online with one, but um, that's about as much as it does. <laughs> well, I'm about ready to have to upgrade. I currently have the iPhone 4, and they just came out with the iPhone 4S, mm. but I haven't decided if I'm going to use that one or if I'm going to try something else. I must admit I'm tempted to get an iPhone next summer I'm in, civil, well, I'm in semi-civilization but next time I go somewhere where I can buy one, <laughs> it's unlocked. Mm. Yes, I guess that would be handy. Mm. Then this next article I thought was was uh, kind of enlightening. Pro divers are less headache prone. This is a, a study uh, as reported by Reuters Health. Uh, despite concerns that water pressure and other stresses might promote headaches, professional scuba divers may actually get fewer of the painful attacks overall than healthy pe- than other healthy people. And this was published in the Journal of Headaches. <laughs> so uh, they uh, they must have a journal for just about everything. Uh, headaches of all kind experienced by 201 male professional divers and a control group of healthy men who didn't dive. Divers were 30% less prone than the control group to get headaches in general. The divers I'd overall. I like to know the results for 201 women divers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sure for an extra, you know, couple hundred thousand, they can do a, that that study as well. Well, I think a lot of guys would know, like to know, you know, how that works out. 
So what you're saying, Mac, is that would be uh, a reason to encourage diving. Oh, yeah, curiosity. Strictly curious. Yeah, strictly curious. Okay. Uh, during the study period, 22% of the control group experienced headaches compared to 16% of the professional divers. The divers who did get headaches had fewer of them per month than the control group. The number of subjects who got migraines in both groups was low, about 4.5% for the divers and 8% for the control. Tension headaches were a little more common. 10% of divers got them compared to 13.5% of the control group. Uh, Di Fabio said, recreational divers are more difficult to study because the number of dives are less easily recordable. So uh, right now they're stressing that this is just professional divers and they don't know if it carries over to recreational. Uh, but they're saying that it would be valuable to study the recreational divers. The emotional stress that you associate with diving, something you would see more with a recreational diver than a professional population. Professional divers are trained pretty well about this kind of thing you need to look for. Recreational divers know a little about it, but that's not nearly as extensive. Now, one thing they, the uh, people putting in the study did point out is they said, if you go underwater and you start to develop a symptom of a migraine or a headache, it'd be safer to abort the dive and take care of the headache on the boat or on the land, which I don't I don't understand what they're getting at that. Are they saying that they're tr trying to discourage you from going down to get rid of a headache? Well, I, I, I think, think you they... see. I wonder if you had a good gas mixture if you're starting to get headaches yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a classic symptom of um, contaminated air is a headache as well, isn't it? So if you get it during a dive, it's not, you know, it's something that you think, oh, it's an alarm bell. True. And if they did, I'd, I'd just be curious if there's any causal event, day versus night dives. That would be interesting. So. Mm. any we, we encourage much broader studies, especially when it involves scuba diving. I wonder if that's something that Dan would be interested in taking on. It might be interesting just to see if Dan has already addressed it to some extent. Oh, very true. I'd imagine they should. Next up on the docket is we have a missing World War II submarine was found in the waters near Borneo. The missing, uh, uh, let me see here, another, s the Royal Nether Netherlands Navy submarine HNLMS K. XVI, that rolls right off the tongue, went down in 1941 with a 36-man crew, six of whom were Indonesian nationality, have been found. Following up a tip on October 2011 by local fishermen who spotted the wreck, an Australian-Singapore team of amateur divers discovered the Dutch World War II submarine in the waters north of the island of Borneo. Marine experts studied photographs taken by divers and observed unmistakable features unique to Dutch submarines in combination with other records enabling it to be identified as KX5I. This brings to the end of a period of uncertainty for the relatives and crews members. The commander of the Royal Netherlands Navy Vice Admiral Matthau Borspoon conveyed them the news. With the discovery, there is only one other Dutch submarine still unlocated, which is HNLMS-013. The submarine went down in the North Sea. This current wreck is... They're planning on designating as a war grave. I'd be curious to know the depth. Yeah, they haven't mentioned that, have they? I looked up a couple of different sightings for it, and it doesn't reference that either. Well, to I me, if a fisherman had spotted it, it sounded like it was clear enough. God, but, I mean... Yeah. Well, it was yeah. interesting to know the history of it. Yeah. That It was uh, on December... Hang on a second here. I just had it. Oh, on Christmas Eve, 1941... Uh, it torpedoed the Japanese submarine Hunter, S-A-G-I-R-I, uh, -I, yet the day after, meaning Christmas Day, it was sunk by another Japanese submarine. So the prey versus uh, Hunter going on there. The submarine battle. It didn't sound like a fun place to be. Mm. No, no. Uh, we have that, uh, that uh, World War II submarine. Uh, we, we've got one in Chicago, which is the German submarine, and we have one in Muskegon, which is an American submarine, the Silversides. And uh, neither of those look like they would have been potentially comfortable to be in, especially when you're being depth charged or torpedoed. Right. The one in Chicago is the UC-505. Uh, the one in Lake Michigan that is still sunk is the UC-97. That's a World War One boat, and that's a mine layer. And like you said, uh, talking about marine technology and Muskegon again, uh, part of the day program up there on Saturday includes self-guided tours of the USS Silversides. That is, that is a nice submarine. If you haven't had a chance to see one, 
uh, easy access. So if you aren't as mobile as, as you would like, you can still get in and see that submarine. Next up on the list is Blackbeard's Cannon Salvage from the North Carolina Shipwreck. Uh, this, this happened earlier this week. Uh, on Wednesday, the 2,000-pound cannon was pulled from the waters near Beaufort Wednesday. Archaeologists and historians uh, have more ammunition for separating fact from legend surrounding the infamous Blackbeard. Uh, the Queen Anne's Revenge Project brought the massive on shore, displayed to the public, before taking to laboratory in East Carolina University. And we'll paste this into the chat room so everybody can take a peek at it. Uh, Did you notice the last person... What's I was that? Say, did you know the legend versus fact? So they said they've netted two hundred and eighty thousand artifacts so far. Well, and, and this mm. isn't the first cannon they've pulled up. No, oh, that's what number twelve or something. Yeah, yeah. So they've uh, they've they've seen quite a few. Uh, well, some of the the people who the quotes they had in the article of people who came to see it. One of them uh, was Joy Hendren. Said we read about it last night. I asked the kids, are we going to skip school tomorrow and go and see this? So they made a roughly 230-mile or 370-kilometer trek from Greensboro with their children, Lucy and Kevin. Um, you know, they, in the article, they talk about funding is a little slow, so they're having a, a challenge uh, getting everything up that they can. They said that so far these these artifacts have attracted more than 100,000 visitors. Uh, well, at a buck ahead, they'll take that much because that's going to be quite a restoration job on that cannon I'm looking at. Oh yeah, yeah, that one, that one's going to take a while, and they got a whole bu- a bunch of others ready to go. Uh, only about half the shipwreck has been examined so far, uh, and they hope to finish the recovery effort by 2013. Uh, really concerned about this the site itself. Uh, each uh, we live through each hurricane season with trepidation. It costs about $150,000 annually for the recovery and lab work, which I didn't think was that expensive. There must be a lot of volunteers. I would think so. In this day and age, I don't know how they could afford it otherwise. Yeah. Now, you, you notice how they, they call this uh, Blackbeard's Cannon, but considering he stole the boat uh, or pirated, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think he, he, he has legal title to it. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, Interesting was- to know whose boat it was originally. Uh, it was originally the La Concorde. Ah. A slave ship, wasn't it? Yep, it was a slave ship. Right. Not exactly the most noble of vessels either. Mm. Uh, well, I like to wonder if part of their, their interest is uh, the comment about some flakes of gold dust for the closest to pirate's treasure yet discovered. Yeah, that, that was so they actually did find a little bit of gold dust. But it, it appears that this particular ship, he sunk because he had too many ships already, and it was getting expensive to maintain them all. Um, He was granted a pardon uh, from North Carolina Governor Charles Eden in June of 1718. He was killed five months later by members of the Royal Navy of Virginia. So uh, not exactly a long lifespan if you're a pirate, it doesn't seem. Not a lot of job security. Yeah. <laughs> you take out your frustrations and uh, anger, I reckon. Imagine no health and safety either. <laughs> and then we have a couple of videos. Well, we'll paste these in the chat room as well, so you can go ahead and, and watch those. This first one is, and I, I'm not going to watch it because it'll probably kill our link, but the uh, there's an exhibition of display paintings and they're made underwater and when you watch the video you can see them actually painting underwater uh, the expedition is exhibition is in the shallows nest castle in crimea is a collection of paintings made in the black sea by a group of scuba trained ukrainian artists decked out in gear painting underwater seascape so uh this, this is kind of like the starving artists underwater I always love it, though, when they talk about the oxygen tank schedule and so <laughs> Yes. Um, Googles. Well, this is like a follow-up to the other one you also had a couple of weeks ago where they had the art on that one particular ship. Yeah, they had uh, where they were. They had the art. Uh, that was in Florida on one of the wrecks where they had art that was actually being attached and displayed onto the uh one of the uh, intentionally sunken reefs down there. 
I'd love to see that the video's being blocked in my area. Really? Yes. Uh oh. I didn't really think it was all that that crazy of a video. Well, it might it might be more the source, which uh, I think I think it's copyright issues. Oh. It'd be the, the sometimes with BBC I can't um, see anything on iPlayer, things like that, because obviously it's meant purely for the UK use. So I think it must be to do with copyright. Oh, okay. And then this next one is Portuguese scuba divers find a Swiss plane wreck. And this now one that is... was an interesting one. That airport is notorious for landing. I've been to Madeira, and it's one of the shortest air runways. Really, you've got mountains one side, the sea the other, and not a lot between them. I went up and looked up the uh, safety report and the accident on this one just for fun. And it was one of those that if you were the uh, survivors or the uh, survivors of the people who obviously died, the, the relatives, you didn't like it since this was basically a um, pilot error to begin with. Should not have happened at all. Mm. Yeah, because this happened in December 1977. Right. Uh, it sank off Porto Novo, Madrid. Madeira. Madeira. Mm. It was making its second attempt to land at the airport when it crashed into the sea after touching down on the runway. Only 21 of the 57 people on board the plane survived the accident. Yeah, what it was is when they were coming in, they were to reset their altimeter at the airport. They got sidetracked and did not. So when they impacted, meaning I think the, the term they called it was, uh, I'm trying to think about, the accident was caused by an involuntary ditching during approach. When they hit the water, their altimeter told them they were at 500 feet. And the other aspect where they're talking about that was just discovered, actually uh, it was found during the recovery of the people. Uh, the location of the wreckage was known to rescue parties and the investigators at the time of the accident. Well, that's what I was wondering. It, it seemed like it, yeah, it's kind of like we've talked about the planes that we can't find in Lake Michigan where they're all lined up for the runway and then they go down. So you think if they are radioing in that they see the runway and they're lining up, it seems like it would be fairly easy to find those wrecks. And if they were supposed to be at 500 feet on approach, you're on radar. Exactly. So, like like you said, the uh, recovery operation knew it, but now this is uh, uh, other divers who have been able to find it. Right. Interesting fact, though, another factoid if you're interested. Sure. There was 81 plane crashes in 1977. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't want to fly anything that was Russian, let me tell you. That was a very mad them. Yeah, well, we, we've had, uh, I mean, the last couple of years we've, we've had some international wrecks, but there was a few years not too far back where there were absolutely no... Uh, you know, at least larger wrecks, planes. I think the largest one I can remember is out on the Canary Islands where those two collided. You're talking over 500 people. But still, it was interesting to look that up and say 81 in, in 1977 alone. I'm glad I didn't fly that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that Rich had talked about in his podcast, and this had it started on uh, Twitter, I think, it was Andy Clark who, uh, let me see if I can find his name. Uh, it was IR Diver, if you want to follow him on Twitter. And he's got a, an excellent blog that's always worth reading. And uh, he, he had a little discussion between him and a friend of his. Uh, and they were basically discussing whether scuba diving is a sport. And uh, just, just to kind of give us a little background on this, here's what is considered a sport. Uh, uh, a noun, an activity involving physical exertion and skill in which an individual or team competes against team or others. And uh, that's not my uh, favorite definition. That was the first one that came up in Google. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia calls it a sport is all forms of physical activity through casual or organized participation aimed to use, maintain, and improve physical fitness and provide entertainment to participants. Sports may be competitive where there's winners or losers. It can be identified by object means and require a degree of skill, especially at higher levels. Hundreds of sports exist, including those of single participant, though those with hundreds of simultaneous participants, either in teams or competing as individuals. Some non-physical activities, such as board games and card games, are sometimes referred to as sport, but a sport is generally recognized as being based in physical athleticism. The oldest definition of sport in English was in the 1300s and is anything humans find amusing or entertaining. 
Other meanings include gambling and event stage for the purpose of gambling, hunting, games and diversions, including one that requires exercise. Roger's defines a noun sport as an activity engaged in for relaxation and amusement with symptoms including diversions and recreation. Oh. So, so I've got tons of them. There's a lot of different definitions of sport. Uh, let's start with Claire. Do you do you consider scuba diving a sport? Well, my initial reaction would be absolutely yes, because it's a physical activity. Obviously, you're refining your skills and that. But the minute you said about competition, I thought that's one thing that generally scuba diving isn't. Is really, I mean, okay, yeah, it does bring out the competitive in some people, but the actual diving bits isn't really meant to be competitive. So that's where I kind of thought, ooh, maybe not. But I, I, yeah, I would say it is a sport, but a non-competitive sport. As in your, it's a physical activity, and the more you do it, the more you're trying to refine your ability. So that, that to me, says a sport, more so than, say, snooker, for example, which is, has the competitive side, but it's not exactly physical I guess it is a little bit say darts that's particularly not physical isn't it so I'd say it is a sport how about you Mac well I don't know I've never really thought about it I think of it more of an activity because as a change is skydiving a sport it's an activity so I'm I'm not sure I'm, I'm gonna have to think about that a few minutes here I did send you a link real quick on a blog that may have sparked that yeah that that's that's Andy's blog link okay. yeah. right there uh, which I, I pasted a link to his blog in the chat room too, so people can follow around. Uh, Dive Mistress says, "Yes, yes, yes." I won the argument on my Facebook page, so she's saying it's a sport. Uh, everybody else in the chat room, just uh, let us know what you think. Uh, you know, my my thought is it's definitely a sport. Uh, uh, let's let's look at another definition. Uh, the, the, now this one is by somebody uh, in 2008, and we'll have again links in the show notes. And he was going from the hardcore approach of what is a sport. And this is back when they were discussing what in the world would ESPN have on 24 hours a day of a channel of sports. And they're saying there are seven, there are six criteria. The first one is physical activity requiring athleticism, which I believe that uh, you definitely yeah. requires it. Now, I'm not saying that all scuba divers are in the best physical shape because, uh, I'm sure everybody's seen some of those divers, and I can kind of resemble that from time to time, that aren't in the best physical shape, but is definitely an activity that you do have to, it's better if you're in shape to do. And, you know, haul dive gear up and down from the beach and tell me whether you think it's athletic. Uh, uh, the criteria number two is a competitive athletic activity that directly pits athletes against athletes. Now, uh, as Richard pointed out, uh, you know, in the old days, there was competition and who could dive the deepest or the longest, but those were usually fatal races. So, uh, but I dare say, Mac, that, uh, and along with a few people in the chat room, when we were in Cooper River, was that not a competition? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I was trying to look at, like, same thing a lot of stuff we do is, you know, bottom collecting. Yes. Collecting. It, it's really the same thing. It, I would say semi-competitive because it would have been nice if everybody found something Right. But everybody did find something. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, there are competitive natures. Uh, at one point, I was even thinking about it as, uh, you know, as running a sport. You know, running is an activity, which, depending on what you're doing, it can be a sport, I would think. Well, you have competition. You have prizes. Uh, you know what I'm saying? What kind of competition do you have in diving? Well, I, I think it's like running. You can have running that's just running. You can have running that's part of another sport, such as uh, soccer or football, or you can have running that is a sport in itself, such as a marathon. Are and I think you can do purpose? the same thing with scuba diving. Well, marathon, you're in for competition. Right. Time. I, but it's like if I dive by myself solo, I'm diving it for myself. That's not a sport or right. not not competition. Well, right, but I mean but you you can kick a exercise. But you can kick a soccer ball, and you know just because you're not competing at that moment doesn't mean that the whole the whole activity of soccer wouldn't qualify as a sport. It's, uh, you know, cause, and there are also portions of, there has been people who have made scuba diving into a sport. So uh, an example could be the scooter racing or the ultimate diver challenge. Maybe because. Well, is, is, I was going to yeah. say, is the challenge the scooters or is it the underwater mechanism you use to race your scooters? So in that case, it's not. It's underwater scooter racing is the sport. 
the means that you use to get down there to stay on it is not. True. I'm curious about your other four definitions. I agree with number one. I disagree with number two. What's the other four? Uh, criteria three is an object of uh, an objective directly correlates with team efforts towards one and only one objective outcome. The point system is not left to objective voting or ruling. So if you base it, if you look at that, that would say that uh, gymnastics or ice skating is not a sport. Except you're doing a cumulative score. Right, but the, but it is objective for voting. I'd say subjective. <laughs> yeah, subjective. Yeah. So, and then uh, criteria number four, there's a strategic offense and defense interaction between opponents. Uh, definitely not there. No. Criteria number five, action involves a continuous clock stopped only by infractions. Not there. And then criteria six, fouls against the opponents are part of the action but governed by officiated rules. Now, when you get down to those six, I think we make one for sure, possibly two, but doesn't look like we're a sport. Yeah. And, and to me, that definition was more of a team sport, which it was meant to be very narrow. And they went on and they had like a correlation. They said another way to determine the sport is to determine what it isn't. And they said some examples of athletic activities that qualify as a sport were baseball, basketball, football, rugby, soccer, volleyball. And then they had a Examples of athletic activities, which may or may not involve an athlete, but would not qualify as a sport. And they had listed was bobsledding, boxing, chess, dancing, field events, figure skating, foosball, golf, gymnastics, pool, racquetball, swimming, table tennis, tennis and track, and wrestling. It's not a sport? That's what they were saying. By their, by their criteria above, those would not be sports. The criteria above just answered that. It's timed, because that's what you're doing is racing the clock. You can foul by going out of your lanes. It, I don't think they were looking at that right. Yeah, well, they, they said that it it can't be a match. Uh, a fight was not allowed. An event was not allowed. So, uh, see, so that what this kind of points out is that the whole definition of sport depends on whose definition you're using. Yeah. Well, in England, actually, they, some people, obviously not myself and quite a few of my friends, but they consider fox hunting a sport. Yes, it's possibly timed and it's pitched against poor fox, but it's not exactly, you know, sporting activity, I guess. But um, what about things like darts? Because they consider darts to be a sport. I think of a sport being something that could go into the Olympics. But over in England, again, they consider darts to be a sport. And as I said, billiards. Mm-hmm. You think, really? I know they're competing, but they're not exactly physical activities or requiring any athleticism at all. But it does require depth of throw. That's true. There's, there's yeah. aspects of the physical activity that they require, but it's not always the physical, you know, the beef. Yeah, yeah that, fair point. Diving actually can be really competitive as well. When you get, I mean, I, I said it brings out the competitive aspect of, you know, who's got the best of this and who's got the better. That's a different thing. But um, very often you get people competing as to air consumption. So can they do the hour dive and still come up with a hundred bar and things like that? So, but I guess that's not an organised aspect of the competitive side. <laughs> I, I, I guess you could, if you came up with rules and judging and, you know, it is time yeah. events. Yeah, so, I guess if you could, yeah, if you could make that dive, the one, you know, see who can breathe the least, but then you'll get everyone trying to skip breathe, wouldn't you? <laughs> so maybe, maybe the challenge is that we need to def- to come up with our own definition of what a sport is. What, what are the other people out there? Anybody giving you some feedback there? I can't see what they're writing or stuff, but is anybody else saying anything? Well, we had Tara who said that she thought it was a sport because uh, of. Uh, I, I, she didn't say, but it's on her Facebook, so. Oh. Well, what about our listeners? What do they say? They've got to be there right there. Optical said he still still doesn't know why it needs to be considered a sport. Uh, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> okay, actually just in good. diving. That's fair enough. Yeah, why, why does it need to be a sport? <laughs> I think part of it is just for respect. I mean, you spend yeah. that amount of money and you do all that, and then somebody's, yeah, that's not a sport. Mm. So maybe, maybe, maybe we need to have a new definition of what diving is. Well, it's like mountain climbing. You know, if you do yeah. a free climb, if you gently climb, if you rock climb, you know, is that a sport or is that a, a, a physical activity? I consider it splunking. Is that a sport? No, that's a physical activity. Interesting, though. See what you started? Yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't start this. We'll blame uh, uh, Andy. Okay. Yeah, Andy and then Rich Rich piled on and, and Tara. <laughs> so I, I take responsibility for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> It's not my fault. It's not my fault. 
And then, and then as we're talking about where there's competition, or maybe not competition, as we have uh, a discussion that was going on, and it's on Twitter. So if you haven't got on Twitter, uh, you can follow Scuba Obsessed at Scuba Obsessed on Twitter. And within Twitter, if you're not familiar with it, there are things such as hashtags. And a hashtag is a pound sign by uh, a word or phrase all mashed together with no spaces in between. And there's one that has been adopted for its pound scuba gear challenge. And some people have taken it up. And what they're doing is they're showing their diving gear or kit and taking photos of it, explaining what it's in. And it's, it's actually interesting to see what different people have. Uh, the problem I have is that th- these are people I consider professional quality photographers taking pictures of, of kits with gear beyond what I have. So when I get mine on, everybody's going to have to be gentle because I'm sure it's not going to be nearly as nice. I got I got a tough act to follow. Tara had some amazing pictures. Uh, Andy had some great pictures. Uh, we had uh, Scuba Susie, who is actually a, a professional underwater photographer. She had uh, uh, talking about what was in her dive bag. So we'd love to see that. Go ahead and uh, you know either put some links on the Scuba Obsessed fan page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. Also go on Twitter and use that hashtag so everybody can follow. And then in the show notes, uh, any any that are in there uh, uh, will have linked as well. Don't worry, my photos won't be brilliant. I'm having to allow my camera phone at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you, you've already had some nice photos out there. My, my gear... Is uh, it, it's it's wore out. It's 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 experienced gear. Let me say it's not all that nice, pretty stuff everybody else has. But oh, uh, most of mine is very worn out too. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get we'll get that out there as well. Yes. <laughs> Bring up a question. Uh-huh. I just sent it to you, IM wise, and I think you brought this up before. Is when are you no longer a diver, or how many dives per year to stay a diver? And yeah, that, that's that, that, those are excellent questions. That's uh, something that uh, Rich also talked about in his podcast uh, this week. Is uh, he was he called them posers? When are you a poser and when are you a diver? <laughs> and in fact, Mac, I think what we need to do is we need to come up and and I'm saying this on the air so nobody can steal the idea, but uh, we need to come up with a license plate that when you look at the plate, it instantly tells you know how experienced you are, like a uh, you know, maybe it fades away if you're not diving <laughs> or, or, or the corner bends over or something. But uh, when are you no longer a diver? I, well, for one thing, I think is you have to keep up on the skills to be a diver. Well, I, I know for jumping, they really recommend at, at least 50 jumps a year to keep current and to keep safe. Right. Um, in flying, uh, like the military, for example, generally require a minimum of four hours a month, which is basically an hour a week to get your flight pay, to stay proficient so you're not a danger. So what is it for a diver? What happens if you don't do this? Do you lose your license completely or do you have to have a refresher? You mean for flying? Yeah. Well, in the military, you won't get the uh, flight pay, (laughs) so that's an incentive. Uh, The other one is you do your... uh, biennial flight review every two years if you haven't been flying a lot you're going to be rusty and you're going to be scared to go back to your flight review mm-hmm. so you don't want to embarrass yourself so that's a little bit of uh, incentive to uh, get your butt up in the air and, and fly a little bit but would you want to fly with somebody who doesn't fly a lot mm-hmm. and the same for jumping is you know you don't have a lot of backup there you want to stay proficient and i don't think you'd want to do a tandem jump with a tandem jumper who didn't get up very much mm-hmm. Well, it, in the chat room, we have uh, Dave, which I like his definition, is you're no longer a diver if your gear dries out. <laughs> uh, if I have a tank in the closet, I'm still a diver. Uh, yeah. I don't have a tank. <laughs> yeah. It gets plumping. Um, I mean, we have regularly, we have divers that come out who have had a long break from diving. And so, obviously, we have the whole, in fact, we had an issue this week, a lovely lady but she hadn't dived for 15 years. And officially, on paper, the only thing she actually had to do was a scuba review, which does cover all the knowledge and all the skills. But, um, yeah, we, we actually gave her a private guide for the days that she dived just to kind of make sure she was okay and comfortable. And it took a couple of days for her to get to a certain level that you'd say, yes, you're a diver. Tara in, in the chat room is saying a patty stat is the average diver 
does a maximum of 10 dives per year. Wow. I've heard that number. It's not many. No. Let me, let me take back one item to jumping real quick. There you've got four ratings of A, B, C, and D license. Even with the master license, and there's an F if you're overseas, after six months, if you have not jumped, you are required by the uh, USPA rules to get with a jump master to become re-familiarized before you jump, even if you've got thousands of jumps under your belt. That's good. Uh, whether they do we, it, it's another story. Yeah, we insist that people do, if they haven't dived for a year, they do a scuba review. If they haven't, say, a dive master or someone with, like, hundreds of dives, then maybe they could just get away with a check dive, which is like a mini scuba review, just do a few of their skills. Having said that, if they're an instructor with thousands of dives, then we kind of, you know, wave that, really. Well, I think with our, our all-powerful microphone here, we can, we can actually make a, a, a ruling. I, I think we can decide what, is, what makes you a, a diver. And my thought is... You, is uh, Maybe the the once you get your your C card, that means that you get to you know let's say you qualify as diver trained, not maybe an active diver, but that you've been trained as a diver. But uh, to keep current, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, to keep current, I think the absolute like if if you don't do at least six dives a year, then you're not allowed to have a scuba license plate. So I, I think that's like the, the, the light level. Yeah, that's that's the least. You can't have that. If you read some of the literature, what they recommend that you do, obviously I would do it myself, is maintain your currency by one diving. They also, I think Patty now and the rest of them would say, go take specialty courses. Now, I'm an old dog, so I didn't take the courses that you take now because we're the ones who invented them, so to speak. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I yeah. don't want to go punch a ticket just because they say I need to get a sea card for wreck diving, night diving, deep diving, cold diving, river diving, wet, dry suit. You know what I'm saying? Right. I like to go through and look at the, the requirements and what did I forget? Right. You know, I like to look at lessons learned when somebody drowned. What did they do wrong? And I think we talk. I think that's how I keep updated. And the dive. Club. We talk about, but if you don't belong to a dive club, you're not diving frequently. How do you maintain your proficiency and keep up with the ball game? Well, I know if I go, and I, I say uh, eight weeks without a dive, but I haven't gone eight weeks without a dive probably in three years. But even going, so let's say five weeks would be a long time for me not to dive. At the end of five weeks, you're, it's not as automatic as it is when you're going every week and getting two to four dives in. And it's different on the type of dive. Because oh, certainly. If I'm diving in the river, it's totally different than if we're diving in the lake, meaning the big lake, versus we're diving in the lake. Because my well, gear is different. Right. Well, and then in the river, I don't want to say buoyancy is not as important, but I, I spend a lot of time on the bottom. And then when you do a shore dive versus a an open water dive or a wreck dive, that's a little bit different skill set. You know, buoyancy to me is one of those. You know, if you if your weights change or your gears change, that that takes a little bit of practice and attention and if you're not diving all the time well and, and we've done that in the club where we'll in the spring for those divers who haven't been diving all winter uh get some warm-up dives we don't go and start hitting the 125 foot wrecks right away uh you know you do some quarry dives and some shallower dives like the havana uh to brush up on your skills we do that here we we make sure that everyone who comes here has to do a local day first so they go on a mooring dive, so they can do the buoyancy checks. They have a sandy plateau, so you're not going to go plummeting down. And you know, it's like a shakedown dive, really, to make sure they, their gears are working as well. And as you say, you've got people who don't dive every week. We've got, you know, we've got a lot of people who, people oh. who dive when on holiday. Well, and that so, gear's important as well. Yeah. You know, if you... You know, say, say like Rich is right now, for, for us in the Midwest, if you're not going to dive in the winter, uh, many places are recommending that you have your gear serviced at the end of the season. And then, but I, I think not only do you, you do it at the end of the season as preventive maintenance. But to me, I almost want to do it at the beginning of the season too, because if, if you're not diving your gear regularly, it sits there. You know, depending on where you're storing it, there could be things that have in that gear. I want to be confident that gear is working. And I'd much rather find that out in a shallower, easier dive than to be doing something a little bit more challenging. Yeah, it's not designed to sit in a cupboard, is it? It's designed to be used. Exactly. So 
so uh, let's have, so we said six six to uh, <laughs> to be the light. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I think you have to dive. Uh, you know, at least six a year, but you have to be diving every year. You can't go and take a take some years off. And then if you're scuba obsessed, maybe that's a better criteria. A scuba obsessed diver is diving at least every month of the year. If you're taking a month off, then you know, you're you're not scuba obsessed. Unless it's an enforced month off. Well, yeah, if you break your your leg <laughs> you and foot. the doctor's saying you can't get in, we'll we'll give you an obsessed pass for that one. But uh, well, you gotta say though, I mean, a lot of people are just not up to ice diving, and that could be due to age or equipment because you need different equipment. Because if we're talking the summer part, like let's say May to to September, you know, that's a normal scuba gear, you know, wetsuit type atmosphere. But if uh, but if you're an obsessed diver and you don't want a cold water dive, then you you have some options. You can go head south. Uh, you know you've got the the mine dive. You know you can go down the Bonterra mine. Uh, you've also got uh, aquariums in the Midwest, Chicago. They have volunteers who work the aquariums. Yeah, that's true. So uh, you know time and money. Time and money. Yeah, that's that's the thing that gets in the way of most people's times down. It's just hard for a lot of people. Like, you've got basically, what, um, 16 weekends in summer? Yeah. How often does everybody get to dive every weekend in the summer? Ain't going to happen if you got kids no. or you're younger. No. Well, you, you, I, I, I actually find it's tougher to, to dive in the summer. That's what's kind of depressing in the winter. You know, I don't have the lawn to mow. Uh, the kids' activities kind of uh, slow down. You know, they might have a sport, but I can usually fit at least one day in the weekend to go and do a dive. So if I look at my dive log, there's been, uh, other than blizzards, we've, we've done some ice dives or river dives pretty much every week. Um, now, the, now I get the bottom time is a lot less because, you know, being a wetsuit diver in 33 degrees or one degree water. I can't uh, imagine it. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. It, it kind of makes it tough to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get two hours in the bottom <laughs> on those temperatures. That's why I live in Egypt. So I can dive all year round. <laughs> I'll rub it in. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't mean that. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get the listeners to email you a little note so we can follow up on it next week. I'd be curious to see what collectively they say is, what do you think you need to dive for a year to stay active, considering where you live, and when are you mm-hmm. no longer a diver? I'd be curious about that. Yep. So you can respond on Facebook if you want to put some feedback, or you can send an email to the show at scubaobsessed.com. And we'll we'll talk about it on the air. Okay, Claire, what kind of diving have you gotten in since we talked to you last? Um, quite a lot. <laughs> uh, I've been doing quite a bit of guiding, so it's been um, the usual run. You kind of, as I said, you have the day local, and then you kind of bounce backwards and forwards between two areas where we have um, some beautiful reefs. You've got uh, Ras Mohammed and Tehran, and then we've got the physical wreck. Um, Actually, we did have, um, was it 6th of October, was the 70th anniversary of the Thistlebourne sinking, which is the Thistlebourne's wreck that sank in World War II. And beautiful wreck. It's got all the, everything in it as well. It's got all the wreck stuff like tanks, bombs, trucks, motorbikes, um, all that stuff. And it's got coral and fish. And I've, I've mentioned it before, but it just happened that this... This month we had a trip going out on the day of the anniversary, so um, I wrote a little blog about it. I must admit I didn't want to mention it at first because the weather forecast was actually quite bad, and we we ferried out and I was thinking, God, as we turn around the corner, we're going to get this huge wind in our face. Uh, thankfully that didn't happen, so we actually did get to do the dive. So I mentioned I started mentioning it to the guests, saying, you know, Well, actually, it's the 70th anniversary. And it was really nice, actually. It's, it is also like the submarine we talked about earlier. It is a war grave, so um, someone had placed a poppy on one of the on the front of the ship. It's actually near the winch. It cable tied a little poppy to one of the spikes there. So that was quite nice, you know. You could give a little nod of respect, and it's quite humbling to go onto this big wreck knowing that it was exactly 70 years ago, and that it's been sat there all that time as well so that was a really cool dive um, as I said the conditions weren't brilliant so it's all added to the you know, I guess the drama of the day 
Um, and yeah, we know just we're noticing it's coming into winter at the moment, you know, which makes it all more challenging for guiding. You've got to think about your plan Bs. Uh, we've had a few days where we've had some quite big swell coming in as well. So as you're going off to your dive site, you have you you've got an idea in your mind of where you're going to go, and then you see the swell. You obviously have to have an alternative option, which is quite challenging. It's where our newbie instructors learn the trade really so that's that's been quite interesting um yet the, obviously what we call winter to everyone else around the world is quite tame so i'm hanging my head in shame at the moment because i'm thinking yeah i know i've actually had the dry suit out and i'm not going to tell you what the temperature is because oh. it's embarrassingly warm <laughs> But it's, you know, it's, it's when you're diving three times a day and you're in the water for an hour each dive and then you've got a northerly breeze. So when you get out, it's that little bit chilly. It's that middle dive after the second dive of the day. We do the first two dives relatively close together. So if you're in a wetsuit, your wetsuit's still, you know, soaking wet. And if it hasn't been in the sunshine, it's cold. So, yeah, that's when we start wearing the dry suits. <laughs> Mm-hmm. which is a bit embarrassing when you talk about ice diving in a wetsuit <laughs> uh, and yeah, my hubby's just sitting in to me oh, I don't wear a dry suit he's still in shorts and t-shirt so wow. or rash vest yeah. yeah everyone's you've got across the board you know you've got two of us already dabbling with the dry suits and everyone else is, or half the others are in shorts and rash vests and you've got all the guests wrapped up in various levels of neoprene depending <laughs> on how experienced they are <laughs> But the diving's been beautiful. I mean, it's it's not summer now, so we don't have the massive shoals of fish that we get in summer. But it's still beautiful, beautiful. It's such a pretty reef. And um, we're seeing the nudibranchs now. We've been a bit concerned over the last few months, thinking that maybe the over the acidification of the oceans has actually been affecting them because we haven't seen any for weeks and weeks or even months. And then literally the last few days, I'm starting to see nudibranchs again. And I think it's a winter thing. I seriously think that they go hiding or maybe they even die off in the summer and then their eggs re- get re- you know, revive or they, um, they get born. Maybe they only last a year. I don't know. I don't know enough about nudibranchs. But um, yeah, we're seeing them again. So that's quite nice. Well, it could be, as I said. In summer, we tend to spend our time looking for the big fish out in the blue and ignoring the reef. So now it's winter, the big fish have kind of gone away. We occasionally see something big. So we're looking back at the reef again and finding the little things. So that's what I've been doing for the last few days, finding little nudibranchs and stuff like that, which is nice. So to go into individual dives, we're probably bore the pants off you all because I've done a few <laughs> since you last you were last online <laughs> so yeah it's just coming into autumn end of summer and yeah we change our style of diving I guess we look you know look for the little things now again pottering along the reef looking for the slugs <laughs> now does water clarity change much as you get into the winter it does, it becomes clearer. Um, we tend to get a bit of a plankton bloom in spring and autumn roundabout. Actually, it's got a way to go yet. When it get, hits about 23 degrees, when it drops down to 23, it causes another jellyfish bloom. So we've got that to look forward to. And that comes at the end, sort of later on this year, and then in March as, as well, as it starts to warm up again. But that's on a normal winter. The last two winters, it's been really warm. Uh, last winter it didn't go below 24 degrees centigrade this is so that's what um, i'll just convert that that's 75 <laughs> degrees <laughs> <laughs> sorry um and that's the water temperature we're talking about the air temperature is about the same actually but normally it drops to about 21 which is obviously a couple of degrees cooler than that 69 drops to just under 70 with the air temperature again being about the same and it's the wind chill that makes us feel cold and the fact that we're doing a lot of dives, a lot of long dives in the day. So that's why we're such wusses, I guess. <laughs> well, Mac, what kind of dive? You had a dive in last Sunday? Yeah, we thought we'd get one last dive in before they put the boats up and winterized them. 
So we did go out to the wreck, not expecting a lot, and we, we were um, not surprised with what we found. This is the first time I've ever been out there when you've got your drag line, you know, the one with the float to the buoy. Uh-huh. When I drag it into the boat, it is as if I had taken it and drug it through liquid slip, which is um, mm-hmm. clay. Yeah. Was that filtered and totally, totally soaked as mud. And you could not see the looking over the over the tail end of the boat. You uh-huh. couldn't see any part of the the motor. You couldn't see anything of the ladder. Like when the ladder went in the water, that's what you saw. Really. So when we got down on the line, as soon as your head went under, it was black. It reminded me of the Cooper River. Really? If he had not had his high-intensity light and stuck it in my mask, I would not have seen him. And I still never saw him. I saw the light bulb of his high-intensity mask. He could look at mine. He said, I think I see the filaments after we talked about this on the surface. I, I, could, I could see the filaments in your light bulb, but it wasn't bright. Wow. So we went to the bottom, had our plan, and I aborted it. And I said, nope, this is not worth it because <laughs> we were using a tag. He was, we were going to do the anchor line, tag mm-hmm. line to him, go out and try to do the uh, center board and do a depth check. Yeah. I, by the time we got out there, we'd be so screwed up, tangled in the in the tag lines. It would not be worth it. So I aborted. No, no I, I agree with that. So it didn't get any clearer on the bottom either. Oh, no, when you went down, it stayed black. Wow. It was, mm-hmm. it was the Cooper River, except we didn't have that much visibility in the Cooper there. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't read your gauges. So what what time see. of the day was this? Uh, we went out at high noon. <laughs> uh, wow. Good. Uh, we actually had a moderation of the of the current, meaning the uh, top kicked down to less than a foot. Uh, it was a fog day when we went out. Halfway there, the fog cut. But... Uh, it was, I mean, it was really pretty. It was, it was not bad temperature-wise, but that river was, was crap. Then coming back, you know where the river is normally brown? Mm-hmm. It was like ink. It was black. So well, coming I, from the chocolate brown to the black ink, it's like, wow. Yeah, I, I, I kind of figured it was going to be like that. I just saw the, I mean, we had, because the weekend it got nice, but during during the week we had four or five days of of rain so i knew the river was going to be completely out now i was kind of thinking that lake michigan might have been saved a little bit but was there a lot of waves out there earlier in the week well during the week we remember in the last week and a half we went from 19 foot waves to last week we had 12 foot waves during the day moderated two days later went back up and then back down again yeah but Back where we dived by the old tower, I, I dived there Wednesday, and uh, I had foot, foot and a half visibility, but I had a nice breeze, and it's like, as eh, without the shed, I wasn't going to go try it, even though I had all my gear with me. Mm-hmm. But just a lot of photography. Okay, well, I mean, at least you, at least we know when not to dive. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like I don't have to, and it would have been. Well, I started going the river up in Niles to look for that safe, but the visibility there was just as bad, and there's too many obstructions to get snagged in over there. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to do that by myself either. Yeah. Well, Jim and I are talking about going out this weekend. He wasn't sure whether it was going to be Saturday or Sunday. You're talking on the big lake? No. I, I He's got his... I think he, he did fix his boat, so he's got the axle repaired on the boat, and then he's also... Uh, uh, I think he's he hasn't winterized it yet, but he he likes to change all the fluids and everything before he puts it up. So yeah. I think he's planning on winterizing, and I don't think he'll get the boat back out on the on the big lake. But he is. Uh, but we are talking about doing a river dive, maybe in Niles. Yeah, because I was really thinking about the uh, Muskegon trip. That could be a all day thing. I'm not sure yet. Mm-hmm. But touch, touch base with us tomorrow. Let us know if you're going to do the river or not. Because, I mean, that's a good option. I mean, it's, it's diving-related. might be something you want to do. Yep. And then, of course, Claire. Ask, Go ahead. How, how deep was it when it was ink black? Uh, we're about dive black. 75 feet. It was black from the wow. top of but you, but you said it was black at the surface. It was black. Yeah. The, all yeah. The, no difference. 
Uh, the temperature was good, 65 degrees all the way from the top to the bottom. Yeah, I didn't see anything. <laughs> no, it's, it, what you're doing is you're that's scuba diving and, and hot chocolate at that point. Wow. You say hot, I'd say lukewarm. Lukewarm. Tepid. Yeah. So then, then Claire, I'm, I assume you'll get a, at least a couple dives in this week. Yes. I don't know what I'm doing this week. I've, as, as I said, I've been doing a lot of guiding. I did some teaching this week, um, so we shall see. We've, we're tapering off a little bit towards the end of summer, so yeah, we'll see what, what I have. Hopefully an open water course or something like that. Are you doing something bit. different with your audio this week? Because you sound really, really good on my end. Do I? I don't yeah, know. I, I haven't, so haven't changed anything. It's a little reverb. It's just like Darren's. Wow. Um, it could be. I've got quite old headphones. So maybe they're a little bit, they've got a bit of a loose connection. So maybe the connection's actually working today. <laughs> maybe I should get some new earphones. <laughs> Good. Well, that's cool. I'm just curious. This was so good. Mm. Yeah, I, actually, the sound from you guys is good today. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, it was really hard sometimes to make out what was being said. Uh, I guess that's the joys of being on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You kind of like the weather. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, yeah, if you it, make make sure you subscribe to Scoob Obsessed. You can do that through iTunes. We love to have those five star reviews. Uh, head on over to the website, scubaobsessed.com. Uh, click on a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we also have, have you put your pin in yet? There's a, you can go on to the about, uh, our fan page, click on that. And then there's a map so you can let us know where you're coming from. That's where our A plus fans do. They go ahead and put that in there. And then also another way to subscribe, which we just added is Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio. You can listen to us on there. Uh, www.stitcher.com forward slash scuba and you subscribe and they'll actually enter you in for a drawing to win a little bit of money so uh, you can go ahead and listen that way nice thing about the stitcher is that you don't have to download the whole uh, podcast all at once you can stream it right to your phone and that's on the stitcher smart radio so are we ready yeah almost almost (laughs) I'm holding on to my desk. Yep. At least the <laughs> visibility will be a little bit better with the with the, the the bad scuba joke. Even if you can't see it coming, you know it's coming. <laughs> and, th- and this one's pretty bad. This is the one I had last last week, but uh, uh, Tara stepped in and uh, did one for us. So this one's been able to uh, age or ripen a little bit. Here we is go. That's a good thing. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> A scuba diving professor stood before his Philosophy 101 class and some items in front of him. When the class began, wordlessly, he picked up a very large and empty mayonnaise jar and proceeded to fill it with golf balls. Then he asked his students if the jar was full. They agreed that it was full. So professor then picked up a box of pebbles and poured them in the jar. He shook the jar lightly. The pebbles, of course, rolled into the opening areas between the golf balls. He then asked the students if the jar was full, and they agreed that it was Professor then picked up a box of sand and poured that into the jar. Of course, the sand filled up everything else. He asked once more if the jar was full, and the students responded with unanimously, yes. Professor then produced two cans of beer from under the table, proceeded to pour the entire contents of the jar, effectively filling the empty space between the the sand. The students laughed. Now, said the professor, as a laughter subsided, I want you to recognize this jar represents your life. The golf balls are the important things, your family, your partner, your health, your children, your friends, your favorite passions, obsessions, things that everything else was lost and only they remained. Your life would still be full. The pebbles are the other things that matter, like your job, your house, your car, and the sand is everything else, the small stuff. If you put the sand in the jar first, he continued, there's no room for the pebbles or golf balls. The same goes for your life. If you spend all your time and energy in the small stuff, you will never make room for the things that are important to you. Pay attention to things that are critical to your happiness. Play with your children, take time to get medical checkups, take your partner out dancing, play another 18 rounds. There'll always be time to go for work, clean the house, give a dinner party, fix the disposal. 
take care of the golf balls first. Those are the things that really matter. Set your priorities. The rest is just sand. One student raised his hand and inquired what the beer represented. The professor smiled. I'm glad you asked. That just goes to show you, no matter how full your life may seem, there's always room for a couple beers. You keep up stuff, you're not going to be able to go back, you know. Uh oh. <laughs> so, until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Take care.